All right. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us today here on Professor Lab's podcast. And very excited to have a guest today that I've wanted to have on for quite a long time. And we just started having more guests on after our bit of a hiatus. So I'm very excited that today we have Andrew Rimby, who is an instructor and PhD candidate in English. He's an associate editor for the Watchung Review, and he's co-host of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast, which I've actually been on, and it's a really insightful podcast for, for all things academic and writing related. So check that out. And Andrew researches 19th century American and Victorian literature from a queer transatlantic perspective. And he was a 2020 Humanities New York Fellow and created virtual Whitman walking tours in collaboration with the Whitman birthplace. All of that sounds really fascinating. And uh, like I said, it's part of the reason why I'm so excited to finally have you on the podcast. So uh, thanks for joining us today. And how are you doing? I'm great, Joe. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me onto your podcast. And it just feels like I'm dropping in on you on the streets. <laughs> so it's wonderful to get yeah. to share all of our uh, informative discussions that happen spontaneously with uh, a wider audience. So thank you so much. Yeah, that's one of the great things about podcasting. And it's, I mean, like many things that are changing now in the the era of pandemic times, right? A lot of the conversations that we've been having for, I mean, for me for years now with other academics, instructors, writers, I mean, I've been podcasting since before the pandemic, but the there's a, a shift of attention focus to these types of formats and, and mediums. And it was already headed that way in many ways, I think. And like many other things in academia, for example, I feel like the, the, uh, pandemic situation has more accelerated a lot of these changes rather than just created them out of the blue. So uh, yeah, it's been really cool to sort of bring a lot of personal experiences and dare I say expertise <laughs> via podcasting. Uh, and it, it, like I say, as well as to have, uh, you know, perspectives like, like yours on, which is really cool because we do have these conversations, like you say, right. That I think a lot of people who are in, in similar situations or realms of thought, would in, and are interested in hearing more about. Um, I, I kind of just want to start very briefly this uh, note in your uh, your bio that you sent me. Uh, virtual Whitman walking tours in collaboration with the Whitman birthplace. I know that you've been doing a lot of work relating to this for, uh, it feels like forever, but I, I'm, I'm, could you clarify that a little bit more? I'm just fascinated by that line, like exactly what that is. Yeah. Do you want to know the origin story? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I love a good origin been, story. Yeah. Yeah. Who does it? Uh, you know, that's how mythology starts. Um, yeah. But it started probably now going on to, um, I would say, two years. Yes, two years. So the first time I had done a walking tour, it was physical, a physical tour that I had been asked by the Whitman birthplace um, if I would take a group on a hike to Jane's Hill, which is the highest point on Long Island in West Hills. Um, so for everyone who's, you know, based on Long Island, uh, it's right across from the Whitman Mall is the birthplace and the hill is literally going um, south from the Whitman Mall. Uh, so 
I had a connection at the birthplace through my uh, outside dissertation reader, uh, Karen Carboner, who is a prominent Whitman scholar. And she had started doing a lot of these tours in New York City. So she does a lot of Whitman in Brooklyn. So she asked, well, Andrew, do you want to start to do Whitman on Long Island? And because of my location here, because of the Stony Brook connection, um, we had never, Stony Brook had never had a collaboration with the birthplace. And when I got really into Whitman, I asked my um, dissertation director, Susan Sheckel, um, you know, how can we make this a collaboration that is a public humanity centered project? And doing this physical walking tour provided a really um, wonderful network. But then, right, the pandemic hits. I'm supposed to do a physical walking tour in um, the summer of 2020. Uh, it gets canceled, like everything else. Um, but once I started to experiment with my students on Zoom technology, voice thread technology, realized, oh, I can use Zoom on my phone. I can maybe try to simulate a walking tour. Um, the birthplace was really interested and luckily I got money from Humanities New York to help fund the project and also solicited my friend to be the camera person. And then I did another walking tour. So I did one in the summer of 2020, then I did one in October in Huntington Village about Whitman when he was the newspaper editor for the Long Islander that he founded in Huntington, um, which is still around. Um, and my mother actually was the camera person. So <laughs> I've, I've roped <laughs> nice. everyone into this walking tour universe and um, just submitted um, a teaching article on these walking tours and all of the lesson plans. So I'll be really happy to share that um, with your listeners and with um, my networks because now it's going to be, it's printed all of what I'm describing to you. So yeah, that's how, that's what the walking tours actually mean. Wow. That's really, uh, I mean, and I will admit straight up, I have not read as much Walt Whitman as I absolutely should, because I, I'm curious, like even, uh, I know we have a main topic that we kind of want to focus on, but like, I feel as if I have you here and you're the Whitman guy and some of the best writing I've ever read I think is Walt Whitman. And I find like, it's a shame that I haven't read more of it, but the, I just remember reading lines from leaves of grass, for example. And I'm just like, you know, blown away. It's, what is it for you? A, I'm curious. Like every time I hear someone, uh, unleash their enthusiasm, just because I think, <laughs> right. When you spend so much time with a writer, like I take, I have to take a little break, especially mm. after this article. Like this weekend, I'm recharging and reading other um, contemporary authors just to kind of get my head back into Whitman. But yeah, what right. is it, Joe, that you're really – I know I'm not supposed to turn the tables on you, but what is it that really captures your well, imagination? Yeah, and that's that's like I was saying. I feel as if I it's almost it's uh, literarily criminal that I haven't read more because <laughs> the only thing I kind of remember reading of of his was Leaves of Grass, and I just remember that was probably back in college now, and I remember thinking to myself that just the 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 
the way his expressions of ideas flow from sort of one, you know, line to the next and then taking those lines together, it it almost it it feels as if sometimes I like to describe as an example, oh, that's what you would say that the dictionary or textbook definition of something is. And when I think of poetic expression and just how leaves of grass flows and how those ideas um, build upon each other and culminate into something greater, uh, it's I, I would have to go back and reread it to really analyze it, but that was the impression it left me with. And that's such an impressive impression to do because it's not always an impression. I get very different impressions, I feel like, maybe from different poets, but him in particular, I... I was just, it was something so impressive about it to me because mm. uh, it seems so seamless and it seems so, so natural. And when you're reading Leaves of Grass and he's talking about natural things, it works extra well, I feel yeah. like. So I don't know if that, so, that makes sense, but. Oh, I love, no, I love this because it's the question I start with when I teach Whitman. Like I just finished in the fall. I taught a Whitman intensive writing course, but we could talk a little later about if you want how I organized it. Cause it wasn't the traditional, like one author or single author focused course. Mm -hmm. Um, but it could have, it could have been taught that way. Um, right. But I agree with you. Song of myself is what really got me hooked. And it is that immersive. I would now writing about Whitman say a manipulative marketing, stra marketing strategy, um, that he's doing as a poet, which is to substitute the reader for the speaker at times or to really put you in the narrative almost as if it's a choose your own adventure. Like it really does have that type of journey. And mm. I love the Victorian poets. Um, I do, but right. If you're reading, um, let me see, I'll choose. Okay. Tennyson, who Whitman actually really did enjoy reading. Right, reading Tennyson and the the style and the form completely different than Whitman's free verse, and you have to know more illusions when you read a lot of Victorian poets. Like, right, yeah. You have to think, well, what? Where is this in Shakespeare? Where is this right. in the Bible? Yeah. Like Whitman, right. you're never looking for illusions, and I do think that that is a really intentional strategy because mm -hmm. it allows for a wider readership. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think today I read it and, or again, I haven't read it in too long, but I remember reading it and thinking almost that this is crazy that this was written, uh, however many, you know, years before hundred and whatever years, cause it, it didn't feel that way to me. It felt sort of, uh, timeless in that, that way to use the cliche, but I think it, to me, it felt fairly accurate to describe it mm -hmm. that way. And I, to me, that's, that's, you know, in its own way, certainly very impressive. Well, I'm glad that Whitman has another fan, which he oh, would yeah, be very sure. excited about. Yeah. 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 No, that, that's, that's, that's great. I mean, I, and this is sort of leading into kind of what I, I really wanted to talk about as well today, uh, because we have been talking and a lot of times when these topics sort of reemerge, it really means that there's something to it that needs to be said. And one of the topics that we've been discussing is this idea of, our own creative work and sort of like many writers throughout history, trying to balance their professional lives with their creative lives and how those sometimes cross over some, how sometimes they're very separate. It's really fascinating. The more I think about it, 
as I'm reading books and I, I, I like to look up authors and hear their stories and learn the context behind, okay, what was, what else was going on in their life that may have obviously informed or influenced their perspectives and what they wanted to say about the world. Right. And you get such stark differences sometimes, obviously for various reasons. I mean, there's the time point in history, there's, uh, all, you know, all other sorts of factors, whether gender, race, uh, you know, age, uh, you can go through all these, these, these factors and these metrics and how they overlap or, or differ from one author to the next, but they all certainly have great impacts. Right. And so f- this all applies to ourselves now too. <laughs> we, we don't, I feel as if we don't necessarily think that way when we're in the moment, we think of ourselves as in the moment, but looking back a hundred years from now, if anybody's reading anything or listening to anything that we've done, they're going to wonder that too. Oh, this person had this life or work professional situation. How did that exactly. influence their their ability to create? And I think that's worth us thinking about sort of how we manage our own sort of life work creativity <laughs> balance. So yeah, if you want to, I'm curious just sort of what your general impressions are of of those ideas in general, because obviously there's a lot more specific examples and situations that we can get into <laughs> of trying to balance work life, professional life, uh, with creative life and maybe the nexus of those things. Right. Yeah. Well, so timely a topic, Joe, um, many nuances to this, many layers. And like you're saying, we have to start with our own identity and I've started to really just before coming on to this, uh, discussion interview. Um, I was listening to Stephen King read his own writing book and I just got to the part. So spoiler alert for anyone, but he, he talks about a traumatic event that happened to him as he was writing this book, um, that left him in the hospital. I'm not going to go too far into it just to leave everyone Mm -hmm. with the teaser, but it was a really interesting moment of breaking, especially because I'm listening to him read. It really Mm -hmm. broke the form of the prose. And I realized, oh, he's really giving us his situation. He's giving us the, he talks a lot about his walks every day. I've implemented that um, just for my own listening to music and needing to get away from the computer, which I think is really important, um, especially since we do so much now online, if you're writing um, or teaching, right? But where to start with that question? I guess I would just start from what you said to introduce us, which is introduce this topic, which is this was bound to happen. And I agree with you. It does feel really accelerated, but almost an enlightening way. Well, there's the tragedy of the pandemic and uh, racial and social strife. So, right. There is a lot of grappling to deal with in our society. But I do think that that is connected to this need for us to reach out to the public, to get into podcasting, to do virtual tours, right? To try and position ourselves as, well, this is what creative thinkers do. And we've really, I do think in the university, there's been a real um, divide of this is what those in the ivory tower do, and this is what the public does. And then the public starts to, right, there is a, it's not like the public and academics are so, they're not divided. They are intermingling, but it, 
it's almost like what's going on in your offices physically is behind doors and what happens in the classroom was really hidden to a lot of American society. I think that that door has been burst open and um, I think it needed to because we've had to make, um, understand who we're speaking to, who our audience is, um, and the inequalities in academia. Um, like, so maybe I'll just offer that, right? I'm speaking from an identity as a white man. I am gay, um, which informs a lot of my queer research, especially with Whitman, because that's not always touched upon in biographies. Right. Um, really? But I'm yeah, I, I, well, you'd be... I'm surprised. Well, oh, yes, a lot of the authoritative biographies, so meaning... And I'm not, mm. you know, I'm not calling anybody okay, for right. out, but a lot of the right. times it won't go a lot into his, as any biographer does. A biographer is usually interested in the cultural history of the author. They're not interested necessarily in the close reading of, say, right. eroticism and Song of Myself, right? That's not always where right. the conversation goes. But I, I keep thinking always of Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own as a companion to Stephen King's own writing because hmm. a lot of her advice is you need to have your own space. You need to have this certain income. And the first time I read that, I thought, well, this is wonderful. How idyllic you have, right? Your beautiful mahogany desk. You have um, <laughs> tea being brought in by... Uh, those who um, wait on you. And then I'm thinking, wait, what is Virginia Woolf's life like? And then I realized, <laughs> oh, she's being served by domestic servants. She has lives in a very large townhouse in London. Like, this is not the average person in in society. And then it also makes you think, well, who can write, right? And I think mm. we're seeing a lot of that right now. Who has the spare income? Who is getting funding? Who um, is working during the pandemic, right? Who, who's part of the group too? Like which identities? Race, ma race matters. Um, social class, of course. Sexuality. I mean, there's a lot of factors and... Yeah, I've just, I, I, when I reread A Room of One's Own, I do, while I think it's a really important read about recovering women's literature, this feminist recovery is so important. At the same time, though, right, I think it's necessary to ask, just like Walt Whitman, that I had my students do, why would he say such race, racist statements in his journalism. Like, I thought he's the democratic poet. Well, that's not the whole story. And his family is descended, um, had come to Long Island in the 1600s. And the history that, like, right, I told you about the queer history and biograph biographies, which sometimes is mentioned the one that's usually not mentioned at all is how his family was able to keep their farming going because of slaves on oh, long wow. island yeah i didn't know that oh yeah and there's even headstones 
that I've gotten to see at the Whitman Cemetery, which is at a private residence. So anyone who wants to try to run there, uh, be warned. Uh, you know, you have to – you're not going to be able to see it. But um, there are headstones of the slaves, and Whitman does talk about it um, in the way, though, of, well, I remember when they were freed and I had started to form – a friendship with one of the freed slaves and it's but it, there's not much discussion about it because hmm. I, I, I don't think he had the critical distance to right critique the family um yeah so i threw a lot at you <laughs> i yeah i mean this is why i love this topic is because you can just branch out into so many different aspects that are i mean so many of the points that you said are entire (laughs) podcasts of their own to to delve into further right and i i think what it comes back to though is this sort of core idea or question like you said in terms of how are we balancing our i mean this applies to everybody right like how are we balancing our work lives our professional lives with our other lives whatever those be whether they you want to call it personally, like romantic relationships, like fam- familial relationships, um, and then obviously creatively, right? That that creative space that we have to work with, and th- these are spaces that like everybody has had to reconsider, regardless of mm-hmm. if you are a creative, artistic person or not. And it it's obviously been variously or challenging in various ways to many people and. Uh, almost uh, and, and oftentimes in many ways tragically so unfortunately right uh, obviously I think we we do want to try to take silver linings and lessons out of the pandemic situation and it's it, it, that's a no way to to mitigate obviously the the, the tragedy and the suffering right but mm-hmm. it's like with any bad situations we really do have to assess okay what are we why are we doing what we really are doing and when I think about my own creative space, I think this is something that I mentioned to you back uh, a couple of days ago, even we were talking about how I went to grad school as a short fiction writer. That was sort of mm-hmm. my my jam. And it's really what I focused on. And I've published short fiction pieces in journals, magazines, whatever, but I haven't actually written that type of, I haven't published that type of writing or even written it in a couple of years now, I actually sort of took a, a a personal hiatus from it. And I didn't know when or why or how I was going to get back to it, but I sort of knew that I did. And part of it was because I felt like I didn't have the time to really spend the amount of time that that type of writing really needs. I mean, you can say this about any type of writing, I feel like in its own way that obviously the attention to detail is so, is so important. But I mean, I'll agonize over individual words of of a short story for sure. And I, I almost felt as if I, I was at a point where I, I, I wrote a lot of stuff that I really liked, but the, the new stuff that I was trying to write, I I wasn't quite there yet. And I, again, I didn't have the time because of my other sort of work teaching duties. And that's obviously another big problem in academia, the fact that if I'm faced between having to teach an extra class to make ends meet and spending more time on my creative work, I'm going to choose the the former because the latter is, I, I mean, I might get 40, 50 bucks to publish a story, 
but that's that's not consummate to the amount of time that's put in unfortunately right and ironically the more that you publish the the better more lucrative you can get but it's sort of that that's there's no <laughs> there's no bridge in between and in some ways again this is sort of like trying to puzzle pieces together but one of the lessons i appreciate from the pandemic is that um i i kind of in in, in my reassessing of my own like workspaces and sort of how to manage and balance home space with doing work i i think part of that reassessment and and ideally dare i say growth has sort of informed me where all of a sudden I mentioned that last week I started going back to some old stories that I had been working on years ago. And I, I, I said, like, like I, I mentioned earlier, I didn't quite have the time or, or capacity at, at those times to, to really do everything I wanted to with getting it exactly right. And I look at them now, there was one I was looking at the other day and I just totally clicked. I was like, Oh yeah, that should say that that should go. That's so obvious to me now. Um, so I think part of this this reassessment has actually creatively really helped. Again, hmm. that's within the context of, I think, a much larger macro problem of <laughs> academia exploitation in terms of like, oh, well, you know, you can teach another class at a third university to try to, you know, get by. But um, so in some ways, it's good because it does put on some pressure, I feel like, to to be able to deliver stuff. But that's a very challenging and tricky and sometimes dangerous game i mean it gets very complicated very quickly right but i'm curious what what you think about any or or all of that maybe yeah well i almost kind of feel that i'm in a therapist uh session which i love (laughs) especially everyone can't see but i have this high back chair so it makes me feel more uh therapy um yeah um taking on the persona yeah so (laughs) What you just said, what jumped out at me, Joe, is that, well, first you went in to really do short fiction, um, to do short stories. Um, but like, I know I have your novel American dreamers. Um, so I know that you did eventually yeah. put all Long, of your longer form. Yeah, you did a longer form, yeah. and you were able yeah. to get it out there, and it's very That's well true. crafted. Um, and don't okay. worry, Joe didn't make make me do this product placement uh, promotion <laughs> for him. Yeah. Um, but it's when though you said the reality is you would love to spend more time on creative writing, but again, we're back to income. We're back to the financial necessity, and. Mm-hmm. However, exposure is essential to get into these magazines. Um, And it's similar to how my friends who are artists um, are expected to do free gallery showings, Um, how in academia you do free lectures, right? Which are also important for exposure, but they're not helping you with groceries or, you know, but right, some are able to not have to scrap by and pick up different jobs because oh, their inherited wealth, their um, maybe they don't have student loans. Um, 
whatever the search situation is, it it really then shows you the I don't know if I want to call it the dark side, but you get to see the real inequality in being a creative mind. Like who whose work eventually makes it and whose work eventually is read and received. And a lot of the times now when I pick up a writer, I well, I'm always curious to look at their biography. Um, like say if they're from the last hundred years. I mean, I know The Great Gatsby is really on my mind right now because it just entered the public domain because it's out of the copyright. Oh um, yeah, that wow, yeah, that was a long time ago. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the 1920s. Yeah, yeah, um, hundred years. Yeah, yeah, and so F. Scott Fitzgerald came from a well-to-do background, um, and it, it, I found then it's really hard pressed to find a writer who we still read from the 20th century, the 19th century, who didn't have at least some kind of um, set-aside income to help them with their writing. Like, even Whitman worked as a journalist, but saved that money for to self-publish the first edition of Leaves of Grass. So he was comfortable enough to not have to, to still have time to write, right? It takes, like you said, it takes time. And, um, right. And it takes time for a composer. It takes time for any art. Um, I'm curious how, and I run a writing group on zoom for six days a week and we meet for an hour and a half to two hours and write for at least an hour and then chat about our projects. But again, the people who come to the group, we all have to have that set aside time. And I'm lucky right now because I have set aside um, stipend money, teaching money, um, and fellowship money um, to not have to teach in the spring. And I'm dedicating myself now as full-time writer, which um, I'm grateful for because it is, it is the idyllic dream however like you're saying joe and i talk with you about this when you're teaching and you take on more courses than um you know tenure track faculty do um because how many courses do you usually teach each semester um it depends um because sometimes i balance it with tutoring and like other sources mm -hmm of uh income like that but typically it's anywhere from four to six per semester so wow i think last semester i did <laughs> i don't even remember last semester I, I did five or six i don't even remember honestly uh off the top of my head <laughs> which is part of the problem <laughs> i feel like so i was just gonna say for the majority of those at a university teaching four courses is their absolute uh, I won't say a worse nightmare because I, I know many who teach four courses, but it is not the ideal balancing schedule to write. However, they have to do it because of maybe their contracts, their, um, right, teaching at different universities. Um, a lot of it comes down to 
what position you have at the university. And I don't, do you find that you're able to still focus time on creative writing during a teaching semester? Well, that's really been the big problem with sort of why one of the reasons why I say I kind of shelved doing any sort of fiction writing for years because it was just the amount of time it took. And again, I've been doing other sort of creative endeavors too, like podcasting and I do my Beach Clean YouTube channel, which as you know, anything creative <laughs> is going to take up time. So in terms of both mental bandwidth and just physical time, I'm like to do writing really well, you can't do it with five, six classes a semester. It's just not going to happen. So mm -hmm. I, I think, again, this sort of, to me, speaks to like these much larger systemic issues within academia where it's just like more adjuncts, more adjunct positions. And it's like, ultimately, at the end of the day, it's just less quality work being done, I think, across all spectrums, really. And yeah. I, I mean, I don't know what will become of that one day, but I think, again... We, we can see this clearly reflected in how important different policies are. Like this is something that we were talking about the other day too. this idea of student loan debt. And if you get rid of student loan debt, well, that's a class maybe less I have to teach a semester now because that's just going to pay off my student loans to teach college, which seems ridiculous to me to begin with. Um, mm -hmm. And that alone, though, gives me a lot more bandwidth to work with. So I think uh, it's an issue of a lack of, I think, I, I don't know how to contextualize it, like understanding or or care, maybe. I, like, it's so easy for me to bash well, academia and we all administration. Know, but. Right. And we all know, like you're saying, we all know from any level at a university, everyone can diagnose the problem. Um, Adjectification adjunctification right i think that's the term um, that's yeah sounds about right right and there's been so much work written by tenure track professors who specialize in this frog boiler cooking experiment that is not happening but instead it is benefiting the administrator's pockets and this highly capitalist corporatization of the university and to treat it like a Fortune 500 company, um, which we see right now is not he helping um, with the university, but also Fortune 500 companies are not necessarily keeping their head above water. Um, so yeah, how, how can we all diagnose a problem, but yet it just keeps continuing? And it's, I, I feel that it's getting people are getting more and more pressured. It's the walls are closing in, but eventually there's a breaking point. And somewhere, someone at a higher level has to um, admit, oh yeah, this is not functioning. This is not working for everyone's mental health. This isn't helping with creative projects. It's not helping with maintaining a rigor of teaching and how can we how can everyone collaborate together and i really do think that the future is in these writers collaborating with teachers collaborating with k through 12 teachers like more of these connections between these institutions collaborating with museums collaborating with 
um, writing workshop programs, like bookshops. Like there, there's a lot of ways that all of this can intersect. It just the infrastructure is now being built, I would say. We are part of some kind of creation of these communities coming together. I just, my hope is that higher level administrators realize that this is so essential in order for these institutions to function. So they're going to have to eventually open the doors. Um, yeah. I mean, those are all great ways to put it because you you remind me of so many thoughts that I have exactly about sort of relating to this problem in, in the sense of the product that they're actually providing students. Because as you point out, as we co essentially corporatize corporatize uh, higher education, well, you better be providing a good product then if you're going to treat it like a product. And if the solution to that is to outsource your labor to essentially adjunct contractors and to treat them like contractors where, you know, well, we got to cut budgets. So like you just don't have a job or even worse, I think part of the reason perhaps why this all has gotten to the point where it has is because a lot of people won't say anything about it. Like I, the only reason I'm talking about this at all publicly is because nobody knows which school I'm talking about because I teach at so many schools because they found a way around the fact that if I worked, if I worked for an employer and I said something and they tried to get rid of me, I could say, Hey, they're trying to fire me for that. Whereas today, if mm -hmm. somebody in admin doesn't like what I say, all they have to do is email me and say, Oh yeah, we don't have classes next semester. We just don't happen to have any for you, which to me is a horrifying job exploitative <laughs> you know and obviously it, it, administrators and schools would ever deny ever doing anything like that but if you know anything about academia um it's obviously all too easy to do something like that right um when it's just your, your contract is over at the end of the semester if we don't like the direction you're going in for whatever mm -hmm. reasons you know there's lots of other people that we can we can have to teach so I think that's and a boutique. that's a big part of it. Yeah, well, and boutique diversity is a really cap is a really business driven model, and I see that really in we see this in full scale at universities, especially when you talk about adjuncts and um, lecturer positions. The majority are women and people of color, and it goes to this flaw in the system, this inequality in those who rise up. Um, but at the same time, I'm being very general because this is all universities. It's not just one, it's the system. Right. They'll say, well, yeah, we respect yeah. the diversity of opinion. We respect multiple identities. We respect, like there's a lot of do, saying the right talk, but it's not existing in any type of actual infrastructure. And it reminds me of someone who buys a shirt um, and I guess because, you know, I do, I'm part of the LGBTQ community, it's, it, it gets tiring when people will wear, they'll buy shirts and show that they're an ally and that's all fine and dandy. I'm really great that they love the rainbow flag. Um, but I never actually, if they don't reach out to the LGBTQ community and ask, well, how can I help? Right. It's... 
you're doing some kind of Disneyfication uh, project that I think we see existing a lot right now. Um, and voicing it is important, right? Speaking about it is important. I realized as a grad, as a PhD student, I actually have a lot of, well, we all should have academic freedom on paper. Um, but like you're saying, it does not necessarily um, protect you from administrator decisions. Um, but as a PhD student, I, at the end of the day, I do, the university wants me, the department wants me to finish, receive a PhD, and now have that credential of Stony Brook University after my name and move, mm. carry that along wherever I go with my next employer. At the same time, though, I do find that we can, I can be a little more free in just saying, well, I see these problems because I am, I am a floating employer in a way. Um, many of the deans at Stony Brook have reached out to me and have been very supportive of navigating these crises and saying, I'm so glad graduate students are addressing this and it's happening in such a public way. Then I realized, oh, wait, so the deans themselves understand the problem, but then also say that they're not in control of fixing the problem. And now it moves to the next level. Then that person says, wait, I can't diagnose the problem. <laughs> so I'm wondering right. who can diagnose the problem. Right. Um, and I, yeah. I, I mean, the, I try and I, I don't like to be a cynical per person by nature, <laughs> which mm -hmm. it's like sometimes it feels as if I, it's kind of hard to avoid when you look at some of the realities of the situations, because to me, it's. I mean, to me, it's largely about money and and finances and and how that wealth is is distributed, right? And mm -hmm. uh, like, obviously, I think that's the only reason. Or it might be, I, I hesitate to say the only reason, but um, the main reason why you do have this situation where so many I know so many instructors who they they teach at two or three different universities, they pick up as many classes as they can, and every single one of them at the instructor themselves, their their students, their uh, department heads, all say that they would want them to be full time salaried employees, and they say and every but nobody can do anything about it. And it's like, well, mm -hmm. then who can do something about that, right? Like, where is that money going if the student's tuition for that class is only going to five percent of that professor's salary? There's yeah. something wrong there. There's something yeah, not the right man there. Behind, yeah, where's the man behind the curtain? That's what I'm curious. That's that's a great question. Right, we're all running around Emerald City, but I really want to know who's pulling the levers. <laughs> um, and my, I, even when you start to talk to administrators, and I can understand they are under immense pressure too. And then I realize, oh, everyone is—it's just trickling down this mm. duress, this precarity. Like everyone is being distracted. I mean, being distracted to get an income to live, right? It's not like the distraction is um, being at a Ringling Brothers circus. It's <laughs> a distraction yeah. where most people can't afford to not, um, can't afford to leave or can't afford to feel that they can speak out because there's retribution. Um, and right, this is something that really reminds me academia really reminds me of 
well, corporate culture, of course, but also from being in the performing arts, it has that very similar precarity of, well, you're auditioning every day of your life. You don't know when the next job is coming. Um, everything's going great once you land a certain production and you have that security for two months or three months or how long the run is of a show, what happens next? And I really do wonder, are we going, hopefully we might turn to a patron system. However, that has issues too, because, <laughs> right, at who are the donors and what are their priorities and what kind of work do they want to see? Um, I, I worry a little. I've started to think about everyone is talking about creating a Patreon account for themselves. And I keep hearing this whenever I listen to a podcast. They're like, my, and if you do have a Patreon, no offense against your Patreon. I was um, just, I was just going to shout out my own Patreon. <laughs> Because I think I have a Patreon. I do have a Patreon account. <laughs> oh, good, good. No, but it's... And then I now am thinking, well, I think I should create a Patreon. And I'm wondering, this is the way to get your... It's a necessity because you need to get your art out there. And then you're getting people to actually donate to you. And we're back in the Renaissance system of patrons, which has existed since... I'd say since Creative Art has been going on there's been patrons um to get it off the ground um but how how soon until patreon is satur is oversaturated that no one knows who to donate to it's mm. <sighs> yeah there's no yeah, I mean, easy solution yeah there's there's a lot to unpack there and it's interesting you bring that up because i sort of have been learning more and more about that as I do more, I mean, I've been podcasting for years now in various capacities, but I've only started doing YouTube stuff with my beach cleaning channel over the past year or so. And the, I think part of the challenge is the fact that there are these very uh, different systems. It's like how somebody monetizes what's going on on YouTube is a whole different animal and how you monetize what's going on on, say, something creative like a podcast versus, you know, something like the more traditional writing route, right? Uh, of like, well, I'm going to try to publish a book or short stories or, you know, articles, whatever. Um, and in some ways, I, it, I'm kind of encouraged by it because these platforms do allow for people to rise up through the, these various systems that otherwise wouldn't have had a way to do it. I mean, to be quite honest with you, I, I do still watch some shows and movies, obviously, on Netflix and Hulu and whatever. But most of my media that I consume today comes from Twitch and YouTube, honestly. Wow. Um, okay. And it's unique stuff and it's really creative stuff. And these are people who you watch. Uh, like I watched this one guy on Twitch called Kit Boga and he's a scam baiter. So he scams, <laughs> he, he baits scammers who try to call, you know, older people and, you know, people of various sorts and try to, tr tries to get their account information and rob them. And he has voice changing software. The guy is unbelievable. And you think, well, without Twitch, this guy, where would he have gone to do that? There's no network. The old models didn't have space for that necessarily, right? Um, and similarly on YouTube, there's there's people on YouTube I follow who, they do nature. I follow a lot of nature stuff like camping, hiking, uh, beach cleaning type stuff, because that's what I do on YouTube. And 
a lot of that stuff you think no nobody would have even listened to this person if they had gone to a producer right in the big ivory tower so to speak 20 years ago before the advent of of youtube now how youtube sort of controls the monetization of that is a whole other issue uh and i i don't know as much about that because uh, it's so complicated and <laughs> i'm not monetizing <laughs> anything on youtube at the moment um but it, it's cool because uh, these platforms I, I mean i was i was talking um yesterday to somebody about how cool it is that even on on a platform like youtube where you can and, and you can use patreon or or paypal or these other mm -hmm. uh you know ways to to monetize them essentially uh, you can do it with ads on youtube too but just the the outreach that you have the people that you're able to connect with i had somebody from reddit who commented on my last speech cleaning video yesterday uh which again to me is is a is a creative i would call it a creative project that i'm very passionate about is i've been beach cleaning for years and there's sort of creative narrative involved because i'm explaining you know, like teaching what I find about, you know, why it matters, all these things. I show mm -hmm. beach trash that I find. And even just yesterday, I got a, a guy from Reddit who was talking about how cool that was, basically what I just said, and how it's inspired him to do, you know, his own beach cleaning work. And then somebody else commented wow. she was from Michigan and she's going to start beach cleaning Lake Michigan. And we were talking about oh, that's how wonderful. that's just as important. So like, yeah, there's I, I in some ways it's really exciting. Um, because I, you know, without YouTube, I, where would I have posted that? Like if only yeah. Facebook existed with my own friends, my own bubble, it's like, yeah, my aunt can see that and think that's cool. But now there are ways for people again, to have that sort of ability, that inroad. Um, and of course, corporate entities are, are like corporate entities are already trying to like, once they realize that's where it's at, like there's a reason why Amazon bought Twitch, right? There's a reason why all these major news networks are switching to YouTube and hopefully independent creators are able to maintain their footprint and their hold. But I think obviously more things will continue to develop, hopefully moving forward. Yeah. We landed on optimism optimism and i'm so happy joe because first <laughs> i told you i'm not a cynical person by nature no 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 and you know me i i usually always see the half the glass half full um mm. and i do think our eyes have been open and i do feel this way every day that i'm not going back to not spreading my academic work over youtube not spreading my academic work with adam on the podcast like this is what needs to happen for us to share our creative ideas. And it's so stimulating uh, mentally and intellectually. I think um, it's definitely here to stay. I feel that once I came to that realization, I embraced it and then just try to figure out, well, what else should I be looking at? And I might be joking about Patreon, but I think it really does offer a way for artists to get their work out. And you can connect it to your podcast, right? You can connect it to your website. Like there's ways to intersect these, put it on YouTube. Um, and I, with one of my walking tours, a scholar in Europe emailed me. That was, that would have never happened if it had gone only in a physical platform, right? Only not exactly. platform, but in the physical world, right? In our <laughs> outside the computer reality. Um, again, so that's my optimism is the way all of this is working. And we, 
especially during the pandemic, I sure you are too. You said you do this with YouTube and Twitch. Well, I rely so much on podcasts and I rely so much on serious radio stations and listening to, well, how's everyone else thinking about their own profession? And it's just really fascinating. Um, I know though, I can only handle so much live zooming just because of the way that <laughs> I use zoom already. Yeah. And I'm sure you feel the same way. And I've even been asked, well, have you thought about doing your podcast live? And I said, well, that's not the format of a podcast. The format of a podcast is that you have episodes released so that anyone can listen anytime, right? And I listen a lot when I'm cooking or doing emails. Um, so if I ever email you and you catch a podcast note in there, <laughs> you'll know what I was listening to. Uh, I worry gotcha. about that sometimes. Um, but I think a lot of it too is those who are not up to speed with these technolo technological platforms are trying to understand, well, what exactly does that mean? What is a podcast? Mm. Um, some especially in academics, I think it's our job who are doing it to then communicate it to the another generation. So I have a lot of these conversations with um, those in the English department and they're very receptive because they want to learn, well, how can they use it for the department? And I say, you know, it's not, it's not the same format of us having a guest lecturer come in for an hour talk. Like the audience, right. intentionally, the audience, in my opinion, you can still have that in a Zoom format. But if you're going to then try to intersect to do a public podcast, a public humanities podcast, which I would say is what your podcast is, what Ivory Tower Boiler Room is, um, yeah. right? You don't want to speak only for a niche audience. Um mm -hmm. Like I've been asked, well, are you doing this only for Whitman scholars? I say, no, I don't want this to be only about Whitman. Like I want it to intersect with everyone coming to listen and getting something out of working through a problem and understanding they're not alone. Like they're so using anecdotes, but using the anecdotes to further the narrative. Because if I want to only talk to Whitman scholars, I have that community. Like I know who I can reach out to. I can, <laughs> yeah, right? right? I just publish, I'm publishing a teaching article. There's a specific, it's going right. to 19th century gender studies. Well, that's a very There's specific already niche. platform for that. Yeah. Exactly. Right. We're creating platforms. Um, well, that's a really optimistic statement. So no. <laughs> no, I th I agree a hundred. I agree a hundred percent. And it's it's interesting. You just reminded me of a perfect example uh, in terms of audience. And I, again, I I keep coming back to the beach cleaning channel that I do uh, because I think it is a good example where the people who I like I said somebody who she's like yeah I live on Lake Michigan you know uh, some some somebody saw my video he was telling me what he liked about them and I'm like cool where are you from and he's a Chilean plogger, you know, you just wow. <laughs> meet these d diverse as heck people who, and one of the, as a, as somebody, as you know, if you're any sort of creative writer 
and you've done a lot of creative writing work, I'm always, whenever somebody looks at any of my work and it applied to creative writing and it certainly applies to the Beach Clean YouTube channel because that's creative work, first thing I ask is, what do you like? What do you think could be done differently? Like, what might you be more interested in seeing more of or was something unclear or did you find that just boring or distracting? Like, I'm always asking like, oh, from your perspective, what did you enjoy about this or what weren't you as engaged by, whatever the, the critique may be? And it's fascinating to get those perspectives from, you know, somebody in Chile versus somebody in Nova Scotia versus who all, all over the world, essentially. And you, you kind of, as with most constructive criticism, you, um, I, I like to sort of overlay those, right? And see where there's, there's kind of overlaps and, and see as well where um, it seems like, oh, okay, there's something there in terms of a, a reaching maybe specific audiences, but also a broader, wider audience. So that kind of like almost hive mind, uh, um, you know, uh, perspective is, is super valuable. And it's something that really, uh, has come, I think with a lot of these technologies too. So I agree a hundred percent on the optimistic note where I, I, I'm so excited now when I get a, a comment notification from some <laughs> seemingly completely rando uh, because I know this is going to be an interesting insight that maybe not only have I not heard before, but in another age, you know, even just 10, 15, 20 years ago, I wouldn't have had access to at all. And they wouldn't have had access to my, my content either, right? Exactly. And maybe to end with an anecdote, I had given a uh, – with the – um, Port Washington Library, um, I've done virtual lectures for them. And one that really stands out to me um, happened during Pride Month. And I talked about queer literature in uh, the 21st century and how it connects to Whitman, of course. <laughs> right? He was my starting point. But then I got to move all the way into um, 2020. Um, with different works that I chose and um, even Tales of the City on Netflix when it came back again. Um, so I incorporated a lot of media and the it's on YouTube. So um, I shared my website with everyone and I'm in the process of adding all of my videos on YouTube to the part of the website that I masterfully called videos uh <laughs> but yeah i got there were so many different generations present and then now that it's on youtube i've heard from even my undergrad students i had them watch it and talk about whitman's sexuality and these conversations and it truly is really meaningful when you hear from your the viewers. Um, for me, when I hear that it's helped them with their coming out experience, or they thought they were alone in these, that they didn't know that this ovoir existed of queer literature. Um, that's what I do it for, right? The reason I am doing this work that I'm doing is because I remember that Andrew from high school who had come out and really just wanted to find his place, his footing, the works that spoke to him. And to know that now the audience that I have envisioned is actually listening 
that's all I could want. I mean, that is, we have an audience and it's so important to actually now know who your audience is because before, especially in the printed word, right? It's wonderful that anyone can pick up your writing, but you usually don't have communication with your audience. Right. Yeah. Right. Now they can reach out to Joe Labriola via his social media accounts. Um, yeah. Professor I, Labs, hit me up. <laughs> Instagram, yeah. Twitter, wherever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I now got back into Twitter because I found, oh, this is, I see now how I can mm-hmm. network with others. And even once in a while, I'll uh, fan out to a celebrity who I've just listened to. And once in a while, they'll respond to me, which I which still Which is really am. cool. It yeah. is really cool. Um, yeah. yeah. So... I definitely am left after this discussion with even more uh, feet on the ground, knowing we are we are speaking to an audience that's listening. Yeah, and uh, I, I'll I'll end on that note as well, in the sense that I mean, the reason why I teach and still teach, despite any of the adversity and issues that we mentioned earlier, is because exactly like you say, the, reaching out to different types of people and seeing what makes us different, what makes us similar and, you know, sort of helping them realize themselves is like truly the most wonderful part of teaching, right? And mm-hmm. teaching writing as well. And again, the the all this other stuff that we're talking about, like podcasting and uh, YouTube and whatever else, uh, at least that I, I do, is just an extension of that almost. And I think it's, a, a, again, really cool moving forward, just thinking about um, how that's that's just sort of like furthering that ability to reach different types of people and, and communicate in different types of ways. So I'm excited as as well moving forward. I mean, obviously <laughs> we we still have challenges before us, but mm-hmm. uh, there there is a lot of uh, I think there's a lot of hope in in that sense, which is which is great. So, um, yeah. but I don't want to I don't want to keep you. <laughs> we're already past our our deadline, so. Um, I just want to say uh, I really appreciate having you on today. Uh, I mean, we could talk for hours more <laughs> about this stuff. I know, I know. It'll be it would so, be an all day marathon. Yeah, um, so we'll we'll have to have you back on uh, in in the future for sure to to pick up on some of these other other topic points. Yeah. Um, yeah. So and I there's more walking to, tours happening in the future too. So yeah, yeah. I, so I want I wanted to mention as well. So you can. Uh, Check out Andrew's uh, website, andrewrimby.wixsite.com slash website. I'll link that in the episode description, as well as you can tweet at him now. He's on the Twitter, Andrew D. Rimby. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm sure you'll be, uh, like we said, we, we like to communicate with with new people and, and people who have uh, thoughts and, and ideas they want to share. So, uh, yeah, definitely uh, uh, contact contact Andrew, Andrew if you'd like to chat more. And I don't know if you have anything else you want to say. Um, Oh, and uh, also, um, if you want to join the um, writing podcast group, it's just Ivory Tower Boiler Room on Facebook. And I'm one of the administrators there. So, uh, yeah, if you want to reach me, you will reach me and I will respond. Um, I respond to everyone. Um, Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Joe. This was really such a pleasure. Oh yeah, same. Uh, same from this end. It's always a pleasure. So, and, and again, I appreciate you uh, giving giving us the time here. So, um, yeah, thanks again. Thanks everybody for listening. If you like this and other types of content like this, again, we talk about 
writing in general, education, all types of creative work like that. So you can uh, follow the podcast wherever you follow podcasts. We're on all pretty much all the apps, I think. Uh, if not, let, <laughs> let us know, contact us, and we'll try to be added to the rest of the apps. But yeah, thanks for giving us a listen. And until next time, stay safe out there, be well, and as I always say, keep on learning. <laughs>